Well, good morning again. If you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, we're going to be working our way through the end of the chapter, verses 45 to 56. Our series in the Gospel of Mark, if you're just joining us, is designed to reintroduce you to Jesus of Nazareth, our great Lord and Savior. Now, in terms of literature, the book of Mark is called a gospel. It includes the gospel, but it is called a gospel because it is an historical witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there are four inspired and true gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even though the gospels are unified in what they teach, they are certainly not uniform in all they teach. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, each of these writers was a unique person, and they were giving us a unique portrait shaped by their unique personalities and experiences. Now, unlike Matthew or John, Mark and also Luke were not eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. They had to depend on others to tell them what had happened. And it's important to know for the context of when Mark was written that as he begins to write, more than likely a great persecution in Rome is beginning. And many Christians are being rounded up and put to death in some of the most horrific manners, uh, often for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. And this included stoning, it included burning, included being fed to animals, sawn in two, even crucifixion. Now, at the time of the actual composition, most of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and to his death and to his resurrection have died. And it's quite possible that Peter, the Apostle Peter, whose memoirs likely provide Mark most of his content, has likely also been killed. So as a growing number of disciples are being martyred, God inspires John Mark to compose his gospel, to compose the, the story perhaps from Peter's eyes, and he inspires him to write to the very people responsible for the Christian persecution, the Romans. Now, as you read each of the different Gospels, you'll see that Matthew writes like a teacher, particularly to Jews, that Luke, uh, a doctor, writes like an investigative reporter to Gentiles. John, he writes like a theologian or a philosopher to the Greeks. And then you have Mark. And Mark writes like a preacher, a powerful, bold preacher to the Romans. He doesn't tell you who Jesus is as much as he shows you who Jesus is and leaves actually quite a bit out. He wrote Rome to Romans, or wrote from Rome, I should say, to Romans, who valued power, they valued action, they valued conquest. And so it follows that his gospel is the shortest gospel, and it has the fewest Old Testament quotes. It explains all of the Jewish customs that it references, and it employs the most active verbs of all the Gospels, I think using the word immediately upwards of 40 times, and it records the most miracles that Jesus performed. Suffice to say, a typical Roman 
reading Mark would have been impressed by the record of Jesus' power, his power over disease, his power over demons, even his power over death. Now, his most famous miracle that we talked about last week was the feeding of the 5,000. And this not only demonstrated his power uh, basically to multiply food in the most miraculous of, of ways, but also his power to gather supporters And in this case, these supporters believe more than anything that Jesus had come to throw off Roman power and start some kind of revolution. But nothing could be further from the truth. When things start to get chaotic, we see that whether that chaos is the result of public popularity like Jesus begins to experience, or even personal difficulty, chaos often reveals what we truly believe about ourselves and God. You know, it's a sense of power, a sense of prosperity, a sense of popularity. These these kinds of power can, can actually challenge our faith just as much as a sense of powerlessness can. Now, In our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus and how he kind of deals with this. But we're going to read that his most famous miracle that we learned about last week is followed by what is likely his most famous marvel. Like the miracle, the historical fact of Jesus walking on water, it should amaze us. But I think we find that for many of us, we need a reintroduction to this marvel because of its familiarity. The miracle is in some ways about that mythical power that the Romans celebrated, but there's so much more in this. You see, in the Bible, water is so often used as the symbol of chaos. It's the symbol that that marks the disorder that's inherent in the universe because of the fall. And, let's be honest, our current pandemic has, if nothing else, revealed the chaos in the world, the chaos in relationships, the chaos in the medical community, the chaos in in the economy. If nothing else, this pandemic has revealed that the world is pretty broken. Such chaos certainly can threaten our lives at times, but I think more than anything, it has the power to threaten our faith and the power to tempt us to believe the wrong things or to disbelieve the right ones. Chaos has the power to tempt us to believe the wrong things and disbelieve the right ones. So essentially, this text, this familiar text about walking on water, it's really about the essence of faith, the essence of belief in the midst of chaos. The text speaks to three different things I want to point out. The first, that we are to believe in the chaos of the crowd. The second, that we are to believe in the chaos of the storm. And the third, it teaches us something about believing in the chaos of our own hearts. Well, if we take a look at verse 45 in Mark chapter 6, we'll read a couple verses and spend some time meditating on what we can learn from it. Verse 45 says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. 
And after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So we have a moment following the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark says that as soon as that was all done, Jesus immediately made the disciples get into the boat and begin to go to the other side, which was probably a six to eight hour trip. Now the original language that is here seems to imply that there's a bit of urgency to Jesus' request or to his action, and also that the disciples seem somewhat reluctant to get into the boat. Now, it seems that this miracle Jesus had performed had a powerful effect on the crowd who had been fed. It was 5,000 men, and so it's likely more like seven or more thousand people together. But the feeding of these 5,000, this large crowd, uh, it's recorded in every gospel, right? We, we talked about that. And Jesus walking on the water is recorded here in Mark, but also in Matthew and also in John. And it's also, it's helpful when those kinds of stories appear in these other gospels to read because it gives us a little more information or a different perspective of perhaps what was going on. And so relative to this particular text, and that is right at the end of the feeding of 5,000 before they have the miracle of walking on water, in the Gospel of John, and John was an eyewitness, so he was there, he provides some additional commentary to what happened. In John chapter 6 and verse 14, uh, John says that when the people saw the sign that he had done, speaking of feeding the 5,000 with the few loaves and fish. They said this, this is the crowd speaking, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, exclamation point. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So it gives us a picture of the effect this miracle had on the crowd and what was happening in that moment before Jesus sent the disciples away. The people are convinced that Jesus is the prophet, the anointed one, the one they've been waiting for, the one they're, they're ready to swear allegiance to his army and for him to take the throne. And John goes as far as to say Jesus believed that they were going to take him by force and make him king. So Jesus sends his disciples away from the crowd that's about to basically turn into a mob. And then somehow Jesus dismisses them and leaves. Mark records that he goes and he climbs a nearby mountain so he could be alone to pray. And he spends, it seems, many hours on this mountain alone. And we're left to wonder what or who he prayed for. What's he praying about? It doesn't tell us. Scholars imagine, some argue that he was praying for the crowd, some that he was praying for his disciples who were about to go into a difficult trial. I tend to believe that he may have been praying for himself, praying against temptation, praying that he would continue to believe in the way of God despite the chaos 
of the crowd. Now, this would have not been the first time that Jesus was on a mountaintop dealing with temptation. Although Mark only dedicates a few verses to the threefold temptation of Christ from Satan, the Gospel of Matthew includes many more details. The third and final temptation of Christ that came from Satan is when Satan takes him to what it says is a very high mountain. And he shows him many kingdoms. He sees not only every nation, but he sees all the glory of all these nations, all their power, all their wealth, all their technology, all their pleasure, all their art, all their beauty. Satan shows him every perfect, wonderful thing that you could ever see in every kingdom in all the earth, anything you could ever covet or want in every culture, in every nation. In that one moment, Jesus has offered everything there is to be offered in the entire world. And let us not forget, this is the world that Jesus loves. The world that he came to save. This is a very real temptation for Jesus. It's not simply an offer of power. It's an offer for the king to rule the kingdom he came for. And all he has to do is bow to Satan. Similarly, the great crowd, upwards of 7,000 plus people, are offering a very different and perhaps easier path to the throne. It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut that avoids the crucifixion and leads to all the glory the world has to offer. You see, the approval of men is very powerful. And the impulse to go a different way than God has called you to go. To be someone other than God has called you to be. Those are very real temptations when the noise of the crowd is loud and encouraging and complimentary. Jesus is offered what amounts to the fast track to the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't simply want to have a kingdom. He wants the kingdom of God. And so I wonder, in the chaos of the crowd, if Jesus prays that he would stay the course. If Jesus prays that he would not give way to popularity or to opportunity. If Jesus prays that he would not let the flesh win, but trust the will of God and not go the way of men. That's what believing in the crowd means. Now, meanwhile, as Jesus is praying, his disciples are learning their own kind of belief about believing in the storm. Mark writes in verse 48, and he saw, Jesus saw, that they, the disciples, were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them, 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for all they saw, or all that saw him, were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's so much to learn here. First, it's important that we understand Jesus sees the disciples. He sees them in the distance. And this is before He's on the sea, before He's near the boat. He sees their struggle. He sees them going against the wind. Perhaps He sees them from the mountaintop physically. Perhaps He sees them in the Spirit. I don't know. Whatever it means, practically, we know that the storm the disciples find themselves in is not a surprise to Jesus. He knows the wind is against them. He knows exactly where they're at. He sees them in their storm. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has seen his disciples in a storm. It's not the first time he has sent his disciples into a storm. But it's the first time Jesus isn't with them in the storm. The idea of Jesus intentionally sending disciples into storms should be a bit troubling to you. Does Jesus really send us into places of difficulty? Send us into storms? Without warning? Now this isn't to suggest that Jesus creates every storm that we experience in life, but He certainly sees them and knows that they're there. The kind of storm we are talking about here are those storms that come when we are doing what we are supposed to be doing when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Think about it this way. The disciples find themselves in the middle of chaos because they were obedient to Jesus. Catch that? They find themselves in the middle of chaos because they were obedient to Jesus. It says Jesus sees them making headway painfully. They're not struggling to obey. That's not what I'm saying. They are struggling in their obedience. Have you ever had that experience? Where God is very clear, Jesus is very clear, the Spirit is very clear about what you're supposed to do, and it's not easy? It's painful? I'm not sure why we believe that every obedience is supposed to be comfortable. But it seems that when we do obey and it hurts, we are always surprised. This reminded me of the Old Testament story of Moses, which we don't often talk about. He was told by God, as we know this part, right, to go and present himself before Pharaoh and demand that he let his Hebrew people, his Hebrew brothers, go. God's people go. And so remember, Moses is not some young spry. In fact, he is an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd. He's been shepherding the hills for 40 years. 
And he likely stuttered. He didn't have a lot of confidence speaking, and so God brings Aaron, his brother, with him. But Moses was reluctant to obey this command. He, in fact, was argumentative about obeying this command. But God makes some big promises to him, and ultimately, Moses obeyed. And the first thing he did was he went to the elders of the people, and he told them that God had met him in, on the mountain through the burning bush and told him what he had been told and actually they were quite excited. They believed what he said. And so the next day he, Moses and his brother Aaron go before Pharaoh and do exactly what God told them to do. They go to, and say, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh pretty much says, I don't know who this God is. And now everything is going to be twice as hard and it's going to be you and your God's fault. And that's what he did. He makes their slavery and their labor twice as hard, twice as horrible, and the people are not pleased. They basically come to Moses and say, what did you do? You made a stink even worse to Pharaoh. In fact, they called down God's judgment on Aaron and Moses, implying that they didn't do what God told them to do, but we know, because we heard the whole story, he did exactly what God called him to do. And when he did exactly what God called him to do, it went poorly and painfully. So Moses goes to God, and what does he say? Why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? Think about the disciples as the wind blows harder and harder. I wonder if the disciples began to ask the same thing. Why did Jesus ever send us out here in the storm? You see, the chaos of a storm tempts us toward a kind of unbelief. When things get hard, especially when we are doing what the Lord tells us to do, We begin to wonder and doubt. We begin to cease to believe God knows, or maybe that God sees, or maybe that God cares. We question whether obedience is even worth it. We even perhaps question whether God is worthy to be trusted. Even though we know like, oh, he, he can... He can free the demon-possessed. He can heal the blind. He can raise the dead. We doubt, like the disciples doubt, whether we're going to get out of this storm. So as the disciples struggle to make any headway, the text says that Jesus sees them as He is walking on the water. It says He meant to pass them by. He wasn't going to stop. What? I mean, you got to read that. Like he, he was just going to walk by. That seems troubling. It seems weird. It seems strange. It seems cold. But I think maybe we need to consider whether not only if that means Jesus actually wanted them to struggle, 
that it might have been good for them to struggle. But also that if he's willing to walk by, he knows that even though the storm might scare them, it's ultimately not going to hurt them. Did you catch that? If Jesus is willing to walk by disciples he loves, I think Jesus has confidence that even though the storm's scary, it's not going to kill them. So as he walks across the sea, he gets just close enough for the disciples to see him in the distance, striding above the chaos. And that's what the sea represents, right? Jesus is not thwarted by the chaos. He's not slowed by the chaos. He is not even in the chaos. He he is walking right above the chaos as if it is nothing. Chaos doesn't affect anything about Jesus. It doesn't affect his vision and his perspective and what he sees, but he certainly, the chaos is blinding the disciples, confusing the disciples, so much so when they see Jesus, they think it's a ghost, an apparition. This caused me to think that I wonder how often Jesus shows up in the midst of our storms. I wonder how often he shows up maybe through the kindness of a person, the words of a person. Maybe he shows up in the midst of a loss or an opportunity, but we actually fail to recognize him. We dismiss that person or that trial, that thing, as something other than Jesus. For the disciples, we see that when Jesus shows up, actually, it becomes scarier than the storm itself. They're more scared of the ghost. They haven't been terrified of the storm. They've just been struggling with it. Now they're, they're terrified. When Jesus shows up, they get more scared. They're so terrified, so full of fear, they just start crying. It says they cry out in fear. Now, Jesus desires us to cry out. Not just to cry. That's really important, right? Jesus, He he wants us to cry out to Him, but not just to cry. And the fear of storms and ghosts, they probably should lead us to cry out to Him, and we should know that He should respond because we've seen so many times, even in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is compassionate. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we get scared. He knows that we are weak. He knows when we're in storms and we're terrified. And so if we get to a place where all we can do is cry, 
that we're not able to cry out. But the fear that we have only leads us to cry, take comfort, because that's when Jesus cries out to us. Even if all you're able to do is weep in fear, Jesus hears and he responds. It's interesting. In the text, it says they become terrified. And what's the word that's used? Immediately. He didn't wait for them to cry a long time. He didn't wait for them to, to weep enough, to need him enough. It says immediately when they began to cry, he said, take heart, it's I. Which sounds a lot like how God spoke to Moses from the bush. It's I. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Well, as an aside, the Gospels are written, right, by the, by the guys in the boat, Matthew and John. And, and these particular guys unlike Luke and Mark. So Luke and Mark were not eyewitnesses to this event. Matthew and John are in the boat. And in their Gospels, they include a passage that is not found in Mark and not found in Luke. And it's about Peter's own walk on water that you might be familiar with. You see, after Jesus had said, don't be afraid, we read in those other Gospels that Peter said, if it's really you, Lord, command me to come out onto the water. Jesus told him to, to come out, and he began to walk on water. But just as quickly as he began to do that, he looked at the storm and the wind and began to take his eyes off Jesus, and he began to sink. Now, if the Gospel of Mark is largely the memoir of Peter, it's fair to wonder why Peter didn't share the story with Mark. Now, it's possible Peter's embarrassed, something he may be ashamed of. I don't think he should be. But there's enough other passages in the Gospels that Peter probably should be embarrassed about that are included. So I'm not sure that's the point. I wonder if Peter left out this particular story, or at least the additional information about his own walk on water, for a simple reason, that he wanted Mark to focus on Jesus' faithfulness and not his or our fearfulness. You see, believing in the chaos of the storm is not trusting that God's going to help you walk above the chaos. But I think the more important thing is that believing in the storm is trusting that he will respond to your fear when all you do is cry and he will actually climb into the boat with you. That's where Peter wanted the focus to be. Not on the fact that Peter doubted, not on the fact that he walked on water and he was one of the few, the fact that Jesus responds to your cries of fear in the storm 
And he doesn't just take you out and say, let's walk away from this chaos. He gets in the boat, in the chaos with you. And as we see in the last part, that brings peace. In the presence of Jesus, in the midst of the storm, there is peace. If you look at verse 51, it says, when Jesus got into the boat with them, the wind ceased. It all stopped. It became easier. It says they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, we've talked about believing in the crowds and, and talked about believing in the storms. And now I want to lastly consider what it means to believe in the heart an interesting phrase in verse 52. You see, walking on water is more than just a, a magician's illusion. Some rationalists in the age of reason tried to explain this moment away scientifically. But the truth is, Jesus walks on water. He does what is impossible. And many of us want to see Jesus walk on water in our lives, right? We, we want to see Jesus powerfully do the impossible in the chaos of our lives. And we are probably convinced that if He did walk on water for us, if He did calm our storm, we would believe. But notice that after Jesus climbs in the boat, Mark does say that the disciples were astounded at what had happened. The Gospel of Matthew adds that they worshipped Jesus in that moment. They bowed before him and they declared, truly you are the Son of God. Now, so you have Matthew saying they're, wor they're, they're worshiping Jesus. They're declaring a truth that He is the Son of God. And then you have the Gospel of Mark saying, and their hearts were hardened. They were astounded and they were worshiping and their hearts were hardened. And it implies that they were hardened because something they missed about the loaves and the fish and feeding the 5,000. They didn't get it. Again, this reminded me of a passage that's found at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where a resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples before his ascensions. And it says that the leaven are gathered with him and when they saw Jesus, they worshipped. Which if we saw resurrected Jesus, we'd be like, yes, Lord, you're alive. But then it says, they worshipped, but some doubted. How, how is that even possible, right? How is it possible to be standing with the resurrected Jesus who you saw crucified and doubt? How is it possible here to see Jesus walk on the water, to calm the sea, and yet have a hardened heart? What are the disciples missing? Well, I think it, it's fair to say that we do more than just see with our eyes. We see and believe with our hearts. 
And by virtue of the confession in the Gospel of Matthew, we know that these disciples believe Jesus is the Son of God. But it seems that even as a follower of Jesus, it's possible to worship even with emotional intensity and theological accuracy and yet still somehow have some hardness in our heart. Now, a hard heart can mean many things. I'm sure there's a spectrum. But at the very least, it means that those with a hard heart are slow to believe some important things. Even if you believe certain essential things. Right? If you're hard of heart, there's some important things that you are having trouble or you are slow to believe, even if you got a lot of stuff right. Peter, through Mark, says that they had hard hearts because they were slow to understand the lesson of the loaves that they had just learned a few hours before. And so what's the lesson of the loaves? What what are they supposed to have learned? Well, in basic summary, I think it probably is something like this. It's to believe that Jesus always sees your need when no one else does. And that Jesus meets you your need in ways that no one else could. I think the lesson, among other things, is simply that Jesus sees our need when no one else does, and Jesus meets our need in ways that no one else could. Always. See, quite simply, to twist it around a little bit, our bodies, our minds, ourselves may not want chaos. But the truth is, our hearts and our souls might need it. We don't want to choose chaos for ourselves, but our souls and our faith may need it. Jesus exposes us to crowds and He sends us into storms, not to break us, but to build us. And ultimately to do this, to bring us closer to Him that we might be satisfied. This is not simply God's way. This is His will. Right? It's why Paul can write in Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, even storms, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, as we close, I wanted to give one final word as we talked about what it means to believe in the crowds and believe in the storms and to truly believe in your heart. You'd be quick to skip verses 53 to 56 because it doesn't provide us a lot of information. This few verses represents um, a kind of summary that Mark does a few times throughout the gospel to kind of summarize a, a large amount of time that has passed. Verse 53, it says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region 
and began to bring the sick and people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Now, I only want to point out one detail in this passage. I'm sure there's other things we could point out, but I want to point out one detail And that is the difference between where the disciples were first headed and where they eventually arrived. The Gospel of John, if you were to read the same story, you would see that it implies that this was rather miraculous where they arrived. Right? They're going through the storm painfully, not making much headway, and they really perhaps can't see the other side. And it says in the Gospel of John that when Jesus got into the boat, they were immediately at the land they were going. Sounds like a miracle. Sounds like he got in, they were on the shore. Now, Jesus in the beginning, right, we said that they were going or told to go to Bethesda or Bethsaida. But they arrived here at Gennesaret, Gennesaret. So Jesus said, go this direction, and it seems like because of the storm and the chaos, they arrived at a completely different destination with Jesus. And what do I mean to say? Well, I think many of us believe we are heading in a particular direction expecting to arrive in a particular destination. And we believe this because we've been walking in obedience to Christ. He told us to walk this way, told us to walk this direction. And it's possible that things may grow difficult. Things may even get chaotic and stormy, so much so that you may want to cry. But I assure you that Jesus hears you and He will respond to you and He intends to draw close to you. But in doing that, He may intend also to take you to a different place than you might have expected. So I just want to encourage you in this way. Don't be afraid of the sea. And don't be afraid of the shore. Don't let your heart be hardened because Jesus is with you and has you exactly where he wants you because he knows exactly what you need and he promises to satisfy. I'd like to close with the same way we started the service with Psalm 23, knowing Jesus has called himself the Good Shepherd. And if you'd consider these words, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the chaos of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me your rod and staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, knowing that for many of us, the circumstances we find ourselves in, thankfulness and gratefulness are the last things that come naturally to our mind. Lord, we ask that in whatever chaotic storm we find ourselves in, whatever chaotic crowd we find pushing us to to be something perhaps that you haven't called us to be, whatever chaos we find ourselves in, Lord, I pray you will help us to trust that you are with us and you are leading us. Continue, Lord, to lead us through what amounts to a very chaotic time in life. Remind us of who we are to trust in the chaos. Quiet the noise around us and Holy Spirit speak to us. Then when we walk in the ways of the Lord. It is in the name of Jesus.